This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, an author with local roots talks about her new book, A Table Set for Sisterhood. These stories of these women in this book, they're here to remind everyone how persistent the female spirit really is. Also, KCBX's Tom Wilmer reports on an Amish and Mennonite community in an award-winning travel story. A frolic is when you gather together and do something uh, constructive, usually have food involved and visiting, but you all participate in the work. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, December 11th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. Each year, monarch butterflies come to the Central Coast for the winter, and this year they've returned in strong numbers to both Pismo Beach and Goleta. Contributor Beth Thornton visited Goleta's Elwood Mesa with a butterfly expert to learn more. My name is Karis Vanderhyde, and I'm a senior biologist with Althouse and Mead. I'm also the regional coordinator for the Western Monarch Thanksgiving Count for the Xerces Society. Into city-owned property, which is the Elwood Mesa open space. The monarchs come here every year between, they start showing up in October and they'll stay through around February or March. And the size of the population is the questionable part, but they come back to these trees every year. There were a few years where their numbers were very, very low, but they are back at Elwood in great numbers this year. So this is a huge relief. Yes, it's a huge relief. The the numbers were so low that um, there was a lot of concern about the population surviving. Yes, in 2020, The Western Monarch Thanksgiving count recorded just about 2,000 monarchs in the entire state, which was shockingly low, and we'd never seen the population sink that low before. And right now, we are looking at about 7,000 to 10,000 monarchs in the trees. So imagine, this is more than we're in the entire state in 2020. And now the monarchs have, that population has jumped up, back up to on par with the 10-year average, uh, with about a quarter of a million. In the state? In the state. Okay. The whole Western population is about a quarter of a million. Okay, great. But the official count numbers for this year have not been released yet. Right. So what do you think accounts for those especially low years? So we like to think of insect populations as naturally bouncy. They, there are so many environmental factors that influence how the summer breeding population grows. There's rainfall that affects the amount of larval food source and for the monarchs that is milkweed they like they only like to eat milkweed and there's but there's many different species of milkweed also we've noticed that extreme heat waves when it can have 
higher mortality of caterpillars. So if you get a, a heat wave well-timed with when caterpillars are just hatching out, you can have more mortality and that would affect the, the population increase over the summer. So there's the summer breeding is when populations can have exponential growth. Females can lay up to 500 eggs, maybe a thousand in captivity, and there's four or five generations of monarchs over the summer. So that population can really grow. Under the right circumstances, it can um, increase really quickly, and then we can see great numbers migrating in the fall here. But if this set of environmental factors is just wrong or ill-timed, that summer breeding population doesn't catch hold and can't get that exponential growth. And then we see smaller numbers in the fall. Okay. So it's how extreme weather affects the habitat? Yes. So is there milkweed here? There is not, there's not milkweed in the grove. And that happens naturally, but also on purpose. We do not plant milkweed when we're as part of a restoration project at an overwintering site because when the monarchs are migrating here in the fall they're not reproductively active over the summer they hatch out and they're immediately reproductively active and that is their goal to mate and lay eggs and grow that population but in the fall they put that reproduction effort on hold and they're able to Put that energy towards making the long flight and around January they'll start mating and waking up that reproductive system but for the time that they're here they want to conserve their energy and live through the winter so the migrating population we call it the super generation because they can live up to eight to nine months whereas the summer butterflies live about one month so these butterflies that are here need to conserve their energy, roost in the trees. They will forage out for or leave the clusters for nectar and water. But for the most part, they are here to survive the winter. This is Beth Thornton. I'm at the Elwood Mesa Butterfly Grove with Chris Vanderheide, a butterfly expert and coordinator of the butterfly counts. She says the most recent number for Goleta is about 20,000 monarch butterflies. So people have caught on that planting milkweed is great for monarchs, and it is. But near overwintering sites like Elwood, what is better for the monarchs is to plant winter flowering plants, particularly native plants, that will provide that nectar source to sustain the overwintering monarchs. Yes. Um, there are a lot of people here today with their yes. binoculars. Is there a best time to come or are there just different times for different experiences? There are different times for different experiences. So in the mornings, you are likely to see larger clusters in the trees in the warmer afternoons or we're here around noon so this is the perfect time for the sun to hit the clusters warm them up and they're going to be more active in the afternoon on a warm day when the sun is shining and then you can see them flying around right now they're we're standing in an open interior of a large eucalyptus grove and the monarchs are flying over our heads and very active they have this spread 
they spread their wings and it's a gliding flight like turkey vultures and they like this open interior to to fly around and explore and find just the right branch with just the right temperature and light exposure that they're looking for. Wow, it's really incredible. It's really incredible. It's so beautiful. Do, you, do we call this a rebound? Or is this Ooh. just how nature works and we're not exactly able to explain it? We are, we are pleased with the bounciness of the population. <laughs> we, yes, it is. From the very low year of 2020, this is a rebound. Yes. It also compares what numbers, how far back you're comparing it to. If we are comparing it to the 80s when we had millions, this is still very low in comparison. But if you look at the 10-year average, this is a very decent year. Are there docents around or yes. are there people here to answer questions? Yes. The city of Goleta has a monarch docent program. It was on hold for several years during the pandemic and a little bit before because of the um, hazardous condition in the grove. But they've done a lot of work to remove some of these dead standing trees. So the hazards are less now and they are um, very excited to restart the docent program this year and uh, one of our docents is here right now. Hi Craig. This is one of our docents. Hi. Hello, Craig. I'm Beth. Hello Beth. Nice to meet you. I'm with KCBX Public Radio. Ah. I asked Craig about the activity in the Grove this season. We have had tremendous numbers of people coming through. For a lot of the newcomers, they're just amazed by seeing this many monarchs in one place. And on the day after Thanksgiving, around 11.15 that particular morning, we had a huge burst occur, and so the entire sky filled with monarchs. And the people that were watching were so excited, they gave out an applause for the butterflies. <laughs> The burst sounds amazing. Here's a bit more explanation. So there comes a point in the mornings um, on bright sunny days that the monarchs seem to be compelled to take off. And so first you'll see a, a few butterflies leaving a cluster and then sometimes the entire cluster will burst off the tree and then sometimes multiple clusters will burst off. And so um, we were fortunate to see this happen. It's, it's beyond words. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for being here too to help the community understand what's happening. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm not seeing any here. So you were saying yesterday they were just there low were, to the ground there here. There were a hundred here getting the little drops of um, moisture off the off oh, the, the grass. grass. Yeah, but they're they're not here today. They're just up there. Well, so. that's what I think. I've been here before, and it's yeah. a different, very different experience every time. Every I think time. people should come more than once. Absolutely. So we're finished. Yeah, we're finished. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was a walk through the Butterfly Grove with Karis Vanderheide. For issues and ideas, I'm Beth Thornton. 
You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, a conversation with the co-author of a new book, A Table Set for Sisterhood, 35 Recipes Inspired by 35 Female Icons. Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we are joined by Ashley Schutz, author of A Table Set for Sisterhood, 35 Recipes Inspired by 35 Female Icons. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Happy to be here. I should note that uh, I'm in San Luis Obispo and you're in Switzerland near Zurich. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and uh, how you got into cooking and then ultimately got to, to the point where you wanted to write this book? Yes, absolutely. I am originally from Southern California, born in Los Angeles, but grew up in both Ventura County and then attended university in Santa Barbara County. So I kind of call all the Southern California regions my home at this point. I have been a professional chef for 20 years, and mainly a private chef, uh, prominently a traveling private chef. Uh, I traveled throughout Europe, Asia, North Africa, Central America for many, many years as a private chef alongside uh, one family and then another, et cetera, even on boats, kind of curating my craft along the way through many different countries and under various artisans and poets and and creative professionals. Um, I eventually met a handsome Swiss gentleman and ended up living here in Switzerland for the past seven years now. I have a couple kids, and I'm raising them here, and I still work as a private chef. And uh, this book concept was born about 2016-2017. I am a co-author of the book, and the other co-author is the illustrator. Her name is also Ashley. She's also American and living here in Switzerland. And uh, we were kind of navigating the, the valleys of new motherhood together and trying to keep our creative passions alive and our, our work going in various ways. Um, and it was 2017 when the Me Too movement and the big uh, women's march was happening. And we both just felt really fueled by what was going on, specifically in our home country, where we were not, because we were living as immigrants in Switzerland. And we started dreaming up these stories of women that we were researching and reading books about and how we wanted to pass them down to our daughters. And then the concept just brewed and brewed and grew and me being uh, always navigating stories and connections through the lens of food, I brought in this idea of matching recipes with their stories. And it just grew from there. How the heck? I have to, I'll put heck in there and not the other one. Uh, how the <laughs> heck did you narrow it down to uh, just 35 uh, famous women? Oh, it was so difficult, I tell you. I, I will say that part of the decision on 35 had to do with with what our, our publishers preferred because they wanted a certain tangible size of the book in mind. Um, how we chose was extremely difficult, but we really tried to just pick from various demographics. Diversity was a very important thing for us. Representation, um, ethnicity, also age, also what these women were standing for, what they fought for, what their stories were. We wanted it to weave together. But then also as we started developing recipes, we wanted the recipes to lean on each other so that you could actually build a full meal out of a book of just 35 recipes. And, you know, I I feel like we definitely achieved that. It's a creative interpretation of a food carousel of all these, these different recipes coming together. And it was 
it was just something that flowed. Well, I, I'm very amazed uh, by the book, and not only the um, personalities involved, some of whom are my own heroes, like Frida Kahlo, the wonderful art. Uh, for those people who haven't yet had a chance to see the book, um, the dishes, the finished dishes are not uh, photographed, they're painted. And this is your co-creator, Ashley Jernigan, right? Yes, she's an amazing illustrator. Um, and this was actually a very conscious choice. I worked for many years in food styling in both Santa Barbara and a little bit in New York. And it was a hard decision for me because I was so attached to the way food looks on the page of a cookbook. But her illustrations are so beautiful and so unique. And we really wanted this book to be cohesive for the relationship between the women and the recipe to be strong, both in content and visually. So by introducing these women through a medium of food, we kind of created this perfect vehicle for driving their legacies, and the illustrations just magnified that. I uh, enjoy eating and cooking, and so I, I very much tuned into not only the book, but your background material that arrived with the book. And one um, of the questions I have for you relates to a statement you make where in your own growing up, you developed a style of cooking that was much like speaking a new language. Tell us about that. Uh, I feel definitely as a traveling private chef, I was in many countries where I did not speak the native language, nor would I really attempt to because it was it was just not uh, comfortable for me to learn, especially in short amounts of time. But I always could speak food. I always had a, a deep sensitivity and understanding for what a country was offering in their marketplaces and their weather and their um, economic environment. And so I tried to be really sensitive and hone into that. And then as a private chef, as someone who feeds people for a living and wants to nourish them and make them feel comfortable in their skin and in their environment, food just kind of became a language for me. So anywhere I traveled in the world, once I honed into food, the connection with people constantly blossomed and grew. I love languages, and each language um, that I've explored so far, it isn't just different vocabulary, uh, but also grammar, and most importantly, I think, a way of looking at the world. There's phrases in Spanish, for example, that are not translatable to English. The idea of using food as a language to communicate with or even heal others is pretty amazing to me. The group of women I uh, grew up kind of cooking around, specifically in Santa Barbara, we all had kind of honed in on this, the power of food in this capacity. And, and I've always believed that food and music are windows into not only other cultures, but they're also windows into emotions. So the way you can connect with people on an emotional level through the lens of food is really powerful. And I love that I get to work in an industry that I get to have a hand in that. And it just, it promotes so much deep connection with other humans. And I think that's what's just kept me going and growing my craft in various ways through the book as well. One of the uh, elements of the book and, and your background that really struck me was uh, feminism. Uh, there's um, an amazing book. Uh, you may have read it. It's a Spaniard by, uh, I think, ethnicity, but he's a Brit. Uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, he wrote a book called Near a Thousand Tables, A History of Food. And he talks about yes. food. Do you know the book at all? I do know of the book. Snail, snails were the first herd animal that anyone can figure out. They're, our ancestors in their caves and wherever, they, they kept snails. But after procreation, 
preparing food and eating was the only other activity in humanity that required a team. And if, mm. you, if you consider that uh, fact uh, that, you know, in the olden days, you know, the men had to go out maybe and catch the animals or the fish and bring it home and everyone prepared and cooked it and ate it and were, and were satisfied. But the idea of a family unit as a team where everyone is equal and respected is very appealing to me. That's another, I think, super important aspect of this book. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, this book really profiles. I mean, the theme of this book, yes, there's feminism is a theme. But what's so important to remember is that this, this theme is timely as, as it ever was. Female tenacity and strength are never just trending. They are permanent. And the trials of women affect everyone in the sense that when you work as a team to curate your meals or take care of your land or take care of your family, what happens with a woman affects everyone within that unit and within that family. And what these stories of these women in this book, they're here to remind everyone how persistent the female spirit really is. So by learning from these stories, the reader can then harness a small part of these inspiring women's strength. And, and I think once we really kind of drop into that concept of how what happens to women affects everyone and how we keep growing and learning from those trials, we can become better and stronger. I'd like to remind everyone, I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. We, today we are joined by international chef and author Ashley Schutz, who wrote a book with the illustrator Ashley Jernigan called A Table Set for Sisterhood, 35 Recipes Inspired by 35 Female Icons. Continuing with the idea of eating nutritious and tasty meals as a family effort, I was very intrigued by part of the book which talks about discussions happening at, at the table, the, the dining room table, the breakfast table, where the theme could be uh, issues of the day or what's going to happen later or uh, family matters. But the point is people sit down together in real time, share a meal, share some food, and share conversations about their lives, which are joined not just at the table, but in so many other ways. And in the book, with each dish, you suggest a table topic. How did that come about? Yeah, the question at the table, that's actually inspired by dear friends of mine from Santa Barbara, um, who I ate many meals with. It's actually my mentor and her husband, Howard and Kim, and they always asked a question at the table. And the table was also full of so many different people every night, and it brought the conversation into one place. It kind of set the tone, and everyone took a turn answering the question. And it was so amazing to feel like just the energy of a room shift around the table and for everyone to pay attention to each other. And the questions would just come out of anywhere that didn't have to be themed. So it was really important for me that these questions were included in the book. And the reason I think it's important is because the whole book is it's kind of a playbook. You, read, you see this visual of, of a woman, maybe you know her or you don't. You read about the trial that she's experienced or what she's achieved, whatever her legacy is. Then you have a recipe, you have a tactile experience, you take it in your kitchen, you invite your friends over, you surround yourself with the people you love, and you ask a question that is still connected to her story. So it's a way of carrying her legacy and her story through your heart, your hands, onto the table, and into your community. And that is just a way of carrying it forward and also relating yourself to their journey and hearing out what your community has to say. One of the other elements in the book that I want to delve into a little bit, and it's a trend here and at probably most places in the world, where the idea of farm-to-table 
farmer's markets, buying fish at the docks and taking them home to cook uh, is very valued, not always as available as it could or should be, but in psychology, which is my own background, there's a, a concept called a sense of place or even to be self-efficacious and knowing what is going on in your community, your immediate environment, your neighborhood, your town is a very important element of becoming a functioning adult and, and carrying on in society. And a lot of times the discussions are global, the, the news is global, and very often the news is bad, but there's a dearth of information or, or ways to get uh, embedded in your own community. And so I think the whole idea of cooking with local ingredients uh, farm to table is a pretty fascinating trend, and I'm glad that you included that in your book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this book, I should you know, remind everyone, it was written and the recipes were tested in Switzerland, where I live. And I lived in a small village of 500 people. So I sourced everything very locally. I didn't have the amazing farmer's market like San Luis Obispo has. But sourcing regionally and locally and creating these recipes, that's how it was all born. And in Switzerland, for example, exactly to the context of what you're saying, kids start walking themselves to school at four and a half years old, which blows my mind as an American. But what you see the village and the community really holding each other in that way. They're selling everyone, each other their eggs and their milk and their bread. They're taking care of each other's kids on the way to school. And it is exactly what you're saying. And the importance of it is so vital to me. And I've only learned it being an immigrant and a foreigner in another country in this kind of raw way. But I do hope that this book expresses that. What were some, uh, if I dare ask this question, in, in, in mm-hmm. becoming a, a world-renowned chef and writing this book, what were some misconceptions or myths that you had to confront? Oh, that's a great question. I have to say I had to talk myself off my ledge a few times with uh, getting kind of overly creative or trying to embellish too much and trying to trying to make everyone happy when you write a book is impossible. And it was great having a co-author who doesn't have the same culinary ability as me but has different creative abilities because we could kind of keep each other in line and keep uh, as we were also taking in the craft of the other person we could help kind of narrow it down. And once I let go that not everyone is going to love what you're doing, not everyone's going to want the chicken prepared that way, you just kind of have to release that and know that what you're creating is a creative interpretation of something you feel passionate about, and I wanted that passion to move through onto the page. And I think it really did, but it did take me a little while to untangle that narrative in my own mind. Some of my experiences studying piano, especially jazz, not just classical, but when you play a tune that is a famous tune and you're never going to be as good as the originator, but there's an idea that when you, you bring your own resources to bear um, on a classic, uh, it could be a recipe or it could be a composition, let's say, but uh, you're honoring that person. You're honoring their artistic uh, contribution. They're not imitating. You're not trying to be better. But uh, it seems like recipes and cooking, especially as it regards your, th- your thematic topic here, the sisterhood and famous women and throughout history, that um, you're honoring their contribution in a very tangible way. And then by introducing them through the medium of food, we're creating this perfect vehicle for driving their legacies even further. And there's stories that then come to the table. Because the table is where we tell our best stories. It's where we share our greatest meals. It's where we come together and really listen to each other. And those are the things we really want to hold on to. 
Um, as we wrap up today, um, I want to ask you a question that is about your status uh, as an expatriate. Uh, myself, I lived uh, two years abroad, and so I have a little bit of experience looking back, you know, like landing on the moon and looking back at Earth. Supposedly the mm-hmm. astronauts said that it wasn't, me on the moon was ultra cool, but looking back at the Earth from that distance was just, you know, they were struck dumb. They couldn't even speak. Uh, as an expat and as an international chef, um, how has that changed your own worldview? Oh, wow. I think it's, I have a, a really deep sensitivity and, um, I have a lot of compassion for people who are also immigrants and foreigners, which is just abundantly everywhere, Um, but also in the power of subtle connection and the um, sensitivity that others bring into welcoming you. I'm constantly marveled and blown away at how I'm treated well as a foreigner, like people really care and want to teach you about their culture, and they want to invite you in. And there's a lot of hard moments, and it's not easy, and I do realize I'm in a, a really lovely country to be having this conversation and comparing myself to immigrants and foreigners. But it has definitely changed the way I see the world as a whole, and choosing to raise my kids in a different country is, has definitely opened my eyes and heart. Thank you so much. I am Brian Reynolds for KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we were joined by author... Ashley Schutz. She and her co-author, Ashley Jernigan, wrote a new book entitled A Table Set for Sisterhood, 35 Recipes Inspired by 35 Female Icons. Thank you so much, Ashley, for sharing this, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to share a meal someday. Oh, I would appreciate that. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we will take a look at the Amish and Mennonite denizens of Shipshawana, Indiana.
This is KCBX. Welcome back to Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. At KCBX, we're proud of our award-winning newsroom. And up next, a first-place award-winning travel story from KCBX's Tom Wilmer, exploring the Amish and Mennonite denizens of Shipshawana, Indiana. The Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Awards are the most prestigious in the industry of travel journalism, and Wilmer competed alongside well-known travel journalists such as Rick Steves. This story is Tom Wilmer's seventh Lowell Thomas Award and his first gold winner. The rural town of Shipshawana in northeast Indiana is home to both Amish and Mennonites. Come along and join correspondent Tom Wilmer as he explores Shipshawana where he visits with docent Jerry Beasley at Menohoff Interpretive Center for the Amish Mennonite story. We are a 5013C organization. To begin with, define the difference between Amish and Mennonite. Primarily, it is the lifestyle and a number of convictions that the Amish have that is not shared by the Mennonite church. The Amish are plain in their lifestyle. They do not participate in technology advances in all cases. However, there are some Amish communities that do use solar technology as well, especially if it's involved in a business. And they make arrangements where the use of those items do not violate their own ordnance, which is their rule or religious conviction. These items can be used in those areas with the intent of not having them creep into their personal life and become an element that takes away from their spiritual convictions and their lifestyle. Uh, they're committed to living a simple life and to spending an adequate amount of time with their family and their hope is not to have these worldly activities come in and take their attention away from those. Explain the absence of automobiles and the utilizing of horses and carriages. I'm not sure I can explain that to you completely, but it's a good example of not wanting to get caught up into the world race uh, activity level. And so using a horse continues to challenge them with some work that wouldn't be involved in the automobile. Also, as you might have heard, feel that it is a reasonable way to transport the family and get around today. Uh, the cost of an automobile and the availability of activities and travel would be significant if they were not using the horse and buggy. It would encroach on their daily life more than they are comfortable with. And beyond that, I think it would probably require an Amish bishop to give you a better explanation. I've noticed the Amish riding around town on bicycles. Yes, bicycles are acceptable. There are, in some cases, I think the electronic bike or the e-bike mm -hmm. is acceptable because it uses a battery operation. It's not attached to the grid. I think it's fair to say the Amish community and leaders are committed to staying away from being reliant on the grid. So e-bike, especially in the case of aged individuals, makes life a little more tolerable. So you're seeing those show up here? We are seeing those in this area. Mm -hmm. 
one of the essential premises, which is sense of community. Sense correct? of community, absolutely. It's, community is extremely high priority for the Amish. It's also a high priority for the Anabaptist faith community in general. We see each other as brothers and sisters, and we want to make sure that the needs of our brothers and sisters are met. What do most people do for employment? Well, we are known as the RV capital of the world. We make a lot of cabinets and a lot of wood items. I think it's fair to say that Anabaptists have a reputation of being very industrious. Uh, they are good business people, and uh, they know how to use resources carefully. So uh, RV would be the dominant industry in the Shipshe area. And furniture? Furniture is also big. We have a lot of independent furniture makers as well. We have some larger companies that uh, ship all over the world. The population of the town is about uh, what? Shipshewana, I believe, is less than a thousand. I'm not sure the latest number of the population. I, I've heard it said that it's around the 500 mark of people who live in what would be considered the Shipshe area, and that may be overstating it. It's a small community. In addition to manufacturing trailers and furniture and whatnot, is agriculture still a dominant? Agriculture is big here. There's a lot of farms. Uh, the Amish farmers are typically not the real large farms. But Part of that is because of absence of technology. Absolutely. And then the uh, Mennonite farmers, though, would be large farmers. Many of them have dairy farms or... Because or, uh, they can uh, use gasoline-powered equipment. Absolutely, and, uh, yes. And uh, they produce a lot of crops and uh, enjoy the lifestyle that comes with farming as well. And again, for transportation, an Amish person would not have an automobile, correct? That's correct. Now, they can hire a van to transport them when necessary, inclement weather, a distance issue, any number of things or reasons, medical care. They can actually hire a driver, and there are a fair number of people in the area that actually offer that service. And talk a moment about your life and how you came to be here. Well, I was not born Mennonite in the Mennonite family. I actually was born in Alabama. Mm -hmm. I joined the Mennonite church after I graduated from high school with the intent of changing my life course. I was raised in a Protestant church, Protestant community. I had an alcoholic father and was not interested in seeing that perpetuated. So I was seeking an opportunity to change my life. I found that in Mississippi, of all places. Was there one thing that attracted you? Yes, there was a spirit in the, the friends of mine who were in the Mennonite church that I desired to have. I was relatively successful in the high school social network, but there was something missing in my life, and I could... I thought I could see it existing in the Mennonite friends that I had. And it wound up leading me here uh, to do alternative service back in the 1968-69 period and have been ever since. So you're a conscientious objector. My dad was actually a 27-year veteran of the Air Force. Uh, I was classified as 1A in the draft system. I had to request a change in status, did so, was granted the change in status. How did your dad feel about that? 
You know, it was interesting. My dad said, that's the reason I did what I did. So you can make choices without having to be forced to do something you don't believe is right. I couldn't ask for a better response. He didn't seem to dwell on that and think through it. He just responded that way. Respecting. I absolutely do. Yeah, I appreciated his uh, sensitivity and understanding and brought a whole new level of respect for him and his thought process. So you settled in here, you never left. Married a lady here. We've celebrated our 50th anniversary. We have children and grandchildren, and we're all part of the uh, faith community. Mennonite. Yes. How many Mennonites are here, roughly? In Indiana, I believe we have approximately 60,000 Mennonites in this area. A little difficult to keep a number current, as you might imagine, because we do the best we can when we're counting. But uh, I do believe it's in the 60,000 range today. And outside of Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania is first uh, Holmes County, Ohio, which is another uh, highly populated Anabaptist community, or concentrated with Anabaptist families. And uh, Elkhart County would be the third most populous. And again, the Amish and the Mennonites, they get along greatly interwoven. You would never know from the outside a difference. You wouldn't know from the outside. Uh, there's some issues at times, uh, but what nothing. Would, what would be an issue? Well, if an Amish individual uh, decided to leave the Amish church, that could be an issue if they were out and uh, joined another church. The Amish are very respectful when a dis, uh, an individual leaves them and joins another church. During the period where they're not connected to a church, they're cautious and uh, concerned about the individual's future, for sure. Do you ever go on holiday and travel around? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. We take vacations. and. Amish take vacation. Uh, all of our Plain Church communities take vacations and travel. Uh, in fact, it's amazing how well-traveled many of the uh, Amish and Plain Church, as well as the Mennonite community is. Let's talk about where we're at right now for okay. a moment. All right. Mendelhoff is a uh, organization. We are classified as a museum. We were actually the result of an outreach uh, decision by the local Plain Church and Mennonite community. We were put together and constructed during a frolic, which uh, pulled from the local community people who were skilled in, in uh, constructing a facility like this. Define it, frolic. A frolic is when you gather together and do something uh, constructive usually have food involved and visiting, but you all participate in the work. So this was a barn raising. This was a barn raising. You're exactly right. Now that's, it could be construed as a barn raising. And it's a giant barn. It is a big it, barn. And it went up real quick. It went up in one week. The structure was actually completed with volunteers, and there was a overseer, contractor kind of individual to uh, help people know what to do as well. An architect was involved in the design. Came together in a week and then it took about two years to equip it with the displays and the technology to support the displays. I heard something about this being a tornado shelter. Uh, it could be a tornado shelter, I think. The 
beams that you see as we sit here and talk are large oak beams. There are no nails in putting this construction together. It was all put together with pins and knee braces. And you can see the pins sticking out from the knee braces, the joints there. And that makes it a very, very strong building. Are those steel pins? No, no. They're wooden. No, they're, wooden. They were green pins at the time. And yeah, they expand over the years and oh, get wow. tighter instead of loose. So to learn more about your world. Okay, yeah. To learn more about us, you can call Menohoff. Our spell that. That's M-E-N-N-O hyphen H-O-F. We are there on the web, and uh, you can Google Menelhoff, and we'll be there. My name is Jerry Beasley. I'm the executive director here at Menelhoff. Jerry, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Indiana. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. This is correspondent Tom Wilmer's gold medal winning travel story, exploring the Amish and Mennonite denizens of Shipshawana, Indiana. Hi, my name's Andy Rohr. I'm the Vice President of uh, Sales and Marketing for the Bluegate Group, and uh, we're in Shipshawana, Indiana. It's a great place for people that are interested in arts and crafts, woodworking. Yeah, it's a really entrepreneurial community, and so a lot of the Amish, they do these things in their homes, and they have these things available for sale, and just really high quality, well done things, and just beautiful. And incredibly reasonably priced, too. I'm shocked. Yeah, I, I'm from here, so um, I see the prices, and they seem pretty normal, but that's I hear that a lot, yeah. Talk to us about the culture here, the bigger picture. You have Amish, you have Mennonites. And I found it fascinating that there's this acceptance and there isn't this rivalry or, you know, we're better than thou. Yeah, I mean, they all practice their faith differently, but they all uh, get along very easily. And you'll, you'll see that play out. They play their faith out in their work, in their homes, and, and how they treat each other. Mm-hmm. What I love is little carriages going by, you know, just this time warp. Talk to us about that dimension. It is a little bit different when folks come from a big city and they they first get here and they start encountering the buggies on the road, especially the buggy lanes. They're a little bit, you know, they little confused about that. Sometimes folks won't pass buggies, even though they're in the buggy lane, because they just don't, they're not used to it. But once they get used to it, it's a really nice feature. And as you're walking down the road and you see the horses come by and they're clip-clopping and it makes it a, it helps with that pace and that feel of just being comfortable. I went on a buggy ride yesterday and it was fascinating that the horse was not spooked by any cars that came by. So they kind of understand the drill, right? Yeah, and that that comes with training. Um, Fresh horses, you will see sometimes um, Amish have to work with them to get used to the the cars and things. But once they get used to it, they're fantastic in town. And as you saw, there's buggies in town all the time around here. And then you must have this whole support dimension. Absolutely. There's uh, leather harness workers, um, you know, they horseshoers, and then there's even some uh, buggy makers in the area who uh, you can go out and see them actually how they make the buggies and really a fun community. And it's a very dynamic community. I mean, we went to a play last night here that the people I was with, they go, this is like off-Broadway quality, literally. Yeah, it was, uh, the musicals are a wonderful way for us to share the culture and help uplift people. They're family-friendly, all positive messages. 
are they written and produced by local people? Yeah, they're actually Bluegate produced musicals. They're um, sometimes adapted from books, sometimes written by folks in our company. And then we work with folks down in Nashville to get the sounds right and everything as well. That's pretty impressive because it really is. I mean, you could go on a tour with your troupe around America. We actually have a couple theaters that perform the, the musicals across the country. and oh, Really? Yeah, and uh, we're actually getting ready to film one for distribution on a, on a streaming service. So we're, we're really excited about that. Tell us a little bit more about the economy here. And Shipshawana is a town of about 600 and a bushel people, but we host over 2 million people here a year so very tourism based mm -hmm. folks can come in there's a lot to see and buy and experience and we do our best to keep the small town feel but provide those big city amenities that they want uh, the hotels the restaurants the um, shops all try to scale up to to meet that demand talk to us about your legendary flea market yeah, the Shipshawana Flea Market is really what started the whole thing here in Shipshawana. Made it a tourist destination. It's uh, started with a, just an auction in the 50s, and then more and more vendors set up, and now we have over a thousand vendors. A thousand. Over a thousand vendors on and Tuesday. It looks like the size of an airport. I assume it draws vendors from across the state. And nationwide, really. We even have a gentleman. His name's George. He hand paints signs right there. Oh, it's wow. amazing. Yeah. When does it take place? Is it weekly? May through September, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. It's one of those things that folks, you know, they come in and they're not sure what to expect when they get there. It always surpasses their what they thought they were going to see. How about a couple of the other number one, number two draws, why somebody should come here? Sure. Well, I think Menohoff is a great draw. People always have questions about the Mennonite and Amish history and their culture. And so Menohoff is our Amish History Museum. It does a great job of explaining the history and the culture and tries to give people a little bit of background so they, they know what's going on. The Davis Mercantile downtown is fantastic. It's uh, three floors of just the some of the best local stuff that we have. And then there's over, you know, two to three blocks of other specialty stores. And then, of course, the Blue Gate downtown is uh, kind of a cornerstone. Explain what is the Blue Gate. The Blue Gate is mainly a restaurant. That's how we got started. Reek Secker is our founder, and he started the Blue Gate with 50 seats, and it grew and grew, and now we're up to a 750-seat restaurant, and then the theater is upstairs in that same facility. The Blue Gate is probably one of the anchor businesses in the community. Here we are at a Blue Gate Inn yeah. a mile away from the mothership. Yeah, yeah. so the Blue Gate Garden Inn is uh, our newest venture. It's um, a beautiful hotel. We try to keep the country ambiance but still provide the, the big city amenities that people want. Along with that, right next door, we have the new Performing Arts Center, which is a 1,500-seat venue. We have concerts from everybody from Lyle Lovett to Trace Atkins to a lot of gospel shows, so southern gospel shows. So a little tiny town, that's a big draw. This last year we actually got nominated for an Academy of Country Music Awards, uh, one of the best theaters in the country. So we're, we were really honored with that. We had no idea that we were up for that, and we uh, were just honored to be on the list, really. For the tourist first time, do you have a tour guide that you can sign up for? We have a number of local companies that do that for individuals, and then the Blue Gate provides that for groups. For 12 or more, we can provide a guide for them. So that's probably recommended, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's one of those ways to get the back behind the scenes exactly. things. Yeah, if you want a behind the scenes tour. Yeah. And especially, there's a lot of trepidation of approaching a Mennonite or an Amish because you don't want to kind of disturb them, and you know they're probably bugged all the time by tourists, and so that would be a way to have that kind of calling card, Andre. Yeah, a lot of the folks that we work with are very comfortable answering those types of questions. But as you, I think you felt, the community is very, very friendly. So sometimes just waving at somebody or just saying hi is, is enough to get a conversation started. Uh, our server last night in the restaurant, she said she was doing something where you would come to her house for lunch. It's part of that entrepreneurial spirit. They can go take a buggy ride out to a farm and do dinner in a home. There's a couple of places around here that do that. Really a great experience. Okay, your turn. If I showed up first time, first day, here I am, and we got to this afternoon, and that's it. Well, I obviously like you to do lunch at the Blue Gate. Then I think just shopping around Shipshawana, getting that Norman Rockwell hometown feel of the, of the town is great. And then I definitely want you to get out in the local community, take a short drive out in the country. It doesn't take that far out from Shipshawana to meet those Amish businesses, see those places. And uh, of course, I, if we have some time, we definitely want you to visit Menelhoff and learn a little bit more about the culture. To learn more about your world. Our website's thebluegate.com. Super easy. Rocket science. Yeah, and it uh, has links to a lot of our partners there for, for folks to find out more. And my name is Andy Rohr. I'm the Vice President of Marketing for Bluegate Hospitality. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Indiana. We're at T-Berry. I'm Isaiah Miller. I'm one of the sons. My dad owns the business. We make wooden baskets and they're a little bit different than most baskets in the fact that they're cut to shape instead of being bent to shape. I guess what started the business is that dad had a mill and mom would take his scraps and she put patterns on them for jigsaw puzzles and that kind of is what started it. We sold them at craft shows and we slowly transitioned into baskets. We still make puzzles but it's, it's mainly baskets now. Uh, we have three locations locally here in uh, Shipshawana, Indiana. We have our own store right where everything's made. We have another store about four miles from here. Then we have a booth at the Shipshawana Flea Market. We sell a lot online on our website, on Etsy. Originally, your dad sourced the lumber, the logs, locally, right, regionally. Yeah. Do you still get your raw material locally? Yeah, we, there's a mill about, say, about three miles from here where we get all our native wood. What are your favorite wood species to use? We use a lot of cherry and walnut. Like I said, we get all of that locally. Then we use a lot of exotics, like we use paduke and wenge from Africa. And those are for little accents because it's so expensive, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's only accents. And that's from a mill about... Oh, 30 miles from here. Mm -hmm. You have a little store here too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get bus tours through our location here. We give tours and then they'll stop in our store. Um, it's a little gift shop. Is this your job or do you have another job too? Nope, this is my job. I graduated from high school about a year ago, so I'm probably going to continue in the business, maybe own it one day. Uh -huh. We'll see. And are you a Mennonite family? 
We are Mennonite. My parents were originally Amish. I personally was never Amish. And yeah. being Mennonite, that's why you can have electricity? Yeah, yep, that's correct. <laughs> Some definite functional benefit. Yeah, yeah. We, we have internet, um, computers, yep. I'm Isaiah Miller. Our website is tbraywoodproducts.com. So. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Lauren Yoder. Basically, our biggest thing is belts and wallets and purses, and it's something that uh, we started from a harness shop, which is a very traditional art for this area with our transportation and how we get around from point A to point B. There's a lot of other harness shops in the area that do exactly what we used to do, and we had the opportunity. My wife actually made a purse one day, and it wasn't a prize winner, but it opened the door to what we have now, and that's all we do now is fashion leather goods. Talk to us a little bit about wallets, purses, what else? The wallets are probably the best sellers in quantity-wise as far as overall. And the reason they sell so well is because they're uh, all leather, inside and out. Where most manufacturers, well, they're mostly imported, but most manufacturers use fabric to keep them thin. And our wallets are not a thin wallet. It's not extra heavy, but it, it is thick enough that it, it does stand the test of time. Do you ever get any requests from friends to go back and do some harness work for them? I do. <laughs> and I will occasionally do that. But the thing with the harness work, it's dirty, it's super heavy, and you have to clean them afterwards and you have to reset them. You have modern equipment, but in many respects, it's still very much a traditional art. It is, and kind of the way that works is for our businesses, we create our own electricity, generate our own electricity. In this case, with leather work, it's mostly handwork, not a lot of electricity involved except for the lights. So you really don't need much power. I don't. I run everything off of solar. So we have a backup generator for the really cloudy weeks, but for the most part, it's all solar. To learn more about your world, silverstarleather.com, and that directs you back here to us, which we're, as some people say it, in the boonies. Lauren, thank you so much. What You're a pleasure. Welcome. Good to meet you. And I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from Indiana. This award-winning travel story from KCBX's Tom Wilmer, exploring the Amish and Mennonite denizens of Shipshawana, Indiana, was edited due to time limitations, and you can hear the full story on our website at kcbx.org under Journeys of Discovery. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments kcbx.org. Mm-hmm.